Section 5 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4. William Longsword, 927-943. The change of rulers at Rouen in no way altered the attitude of parties with regard to the question of the crown. Charles the Simple lived till 929, when he died in prison, as some said poisoned. By this event, Rudolf should have been left in quiet enjoyment of his throne, but this was not the object of Herbert of Vermandois, whose support of him had all along been selfish. Herbert's one aim had been to weaken the royal power and increase his own. While, therefore, Charles lived, he was the liegeman of Rudolf. When Charles died, Rudolf was his bitterest enemy. Nor were the other great men of France much better. The difference was of degree, not of kind. If Herbert was perjured and faithless, Hugh was a designing, ambitious man refusing the crown only because he feared its dangerous honor and because he saw that true power lay in the hands of a skillful kingmaker. Arnulf of Flanders was prepared for any crime, and William Longsword, the best among his rivals, was but a fickle, changeable man. To make matters worse, all these nobles were allied by ties of blood and of marriage, which seemed only to embitter the strife. Thus Gaul was the victim of a series of hateful family quarrels. Hence the endless, aimless struggle continues, and the history becomes terribly confused. Such must often be the case when the only principle followed is that of narrow self-interest, self-aggrandizement, and this, in the narrowest, most selfish sense, was the aim of one and all. Nor were there wanting other causes of dispute. At this time, sovereigns, princes, and counts were all trying to appropriate to themselves the revenues of the rich abbeys and benefices, as Robert of Paris had done, or make them hereditary in their families. At this date, the important metropolitan see of Reims was actually in the dominions of Herbert, and it had long been his darling object to put his son into it. Having poisoned the archbishop, he at last gained his end, and the boy of five years old was shamefully foisted into the sea and made to lisp the responses at his institution. We have from a contemporary a naive description of the ludicrous yet shocking scene which followed these youthful consecrations, frequent at this period. The child taught to repeat the responses or spell them, if he could not get them by heart, usually behaved pitiably, sometimes breaking out into whimpers in dread of the accustomed chastisement for not knowing his lesson. For the violation of all decency, Herbert's adversaries probably cared little, but they resented the dangerous increase in his power and opposed his boy bishop. The quarrel continued, and Rudolph, though supported by Aquitaine, Hugh of Paris, and William Longsword, only held a precarious position till his death in 936. No sooner had this occurred than the turbulent feudatories, impatient of a master who was one of themselves, determined to have a king, and there still remained a caroling prince to represent the royal line. Aidgifu, the wife of the unfortunate Charles, 
upon her husband's imprisonment, had fled with her young son, hidden in a truss of hay, to the court of her brother, the great Athelstan, under whose sheltering power England became the home of all unfortunate exiles. This son, Louis d'Outremer, from beyond the sea, was now recalled, and in a great council invested with the royal authority. Hugh of Paris again refusing the proffered honour, and preferring the post of guardian to the young king. Thus, then, was the throne of France for the last time restored to the caroling line. In the hope of keeping some sort of thread through this miserable civil war, we have carried our sketch of it without a break to the date of Louis d'Outremer's accession. We must now return and treat of the internal affairs of the duchy. Brittany had been nominally granted to Rollo by Charles the Simple at the Treaty of Claronept, but Charles in so doing had granted that over which he had no real power. The Bretons, proud of their Celtic descent, proud of having escaped the all-embracing empire of Charles the Great, resented this act. The want of unity between the various provinces had hitherto kept them quiet, they had perforce submitted to the continued devastations of the Northmen from the sea, who were seeking to carve out dependencies for themselves as Rollo had done, and to the galling yoke of the Norman duke. But now in 930, roused by the change of rulers at Rouen, they rose under two of their princes, Berenger and Allen, massacred the Northmen in their country, and invaded the Norman duchy. William Longsword, however, completely crushed the revolt in 932. Berenger submitted, Allen fled to the court of Athelstan, and when restored on the intercession of the latter, was forced to accept the terms imposed by the conqueror at the first suppression of the rebellion. The result was an important increase of the Norman territory by the acquisition of the Cotentin and the Channel Islands, and the formal acknowledgment of the Norman supremacy over the rest of Brittany. The door was thus opened to further conquests in the east and south in Men and Brittany. Normandy advanced to the seaboard on the west, gained a boundary, important as well for its physical characteristics as for its two harbours, the dangerous Barfleur to the east and the important Cherbourg to the west marked out by the Romans as a stronghold from whence perhaps it gained its name, Kaiseris Burgus, and now the most important port of northern France. The district thus acquired formed the kernel of Norman nationality, which sent forth in later times the conqueror of Apulia and Sicily, and many of the leaders in William the Conqueror's army. The Channel Islands from that day forward belonged to the Norman dukes, were transferred to England at the conquest, were retained when John lost Normandy, and to this day, though French in speech, remain English in heart and allegiance, forming distinct commonwealths dependent on the English crown but sending no representatives to Parliament, and enjoying a legislative independence perhaps unequaled by any island immediately round our coasts, if we accept the Isle of Man. We have seen how completely the followers of Rollo had thrown themselves into the dynastic quarrels of their adopted country, and had assumed the language and the manners of Frenchmen. One district alone, the lately acquired district round Bayeux, formed the exception, and this now became the nucleus for the disaffected spirits. 
here collected those who thought it shame to cast off their old gods, their leaders to victory, and the language which they had learnt at their mother's knee. Their connection with the Danish part of England, the fjords of Norway and the coasts of Denmark, had apparently by no means ceased, and the newcomers fostered the old Northmen spirit of independence in Bayeux. Of the amalgamation with the Franks, William Longepay, Longsword, was a thorough representative. Born of a Frankish mother, he had been taught to consider himself a West Frank, and had been brought up as such. Indeed, his very character, his fickleness, brilliancy, and impulsiveness, all proclaim his Frankish rather than his Norse descent, while the legend that he was in his later days with difficulty dissuaded from becoming a monk shows that he embraced Christianity with all the sincerity of which he was capable. As such, he was hated by the Danish party, and the death of Rollo seemed to give them an opportunity for revolt. It is not impossible that the struggle may bear some analogy to the later dissensions in the northern kingdoms themselves. There we find Christianity supported by the kings, who are aiming at centralization and organization, while the minor princes fight for paganism and independence. The result in Normandy was a formidable rebellion which threatened to overthrow the ducal power and to confine the French language and religion to Evreux and Rouen. William showed for a time the greatest weakness. The terms which he had stooped to offer having been rejected, William, in despair, thought of leaving Normandy, till, encouraged by the bravery of Bernard the Dane, his father's trusted adviser, with that strange changeableness which seems to have been with him a physical as well as a moral failing, he suddenly became brave as a lion, pounced on the rebels, and utterly routed them in 933. The danger he had escaped seems to have had an important influence on William's conduct, both in internal and external affairs, and in fact to explain the inconsistencies of his later life. At first he strove to crush out the Danish party, and to become more thoroughly French than ever. Hence, perhaps, his adhesion given to Rudolf at this date, and his repudiation of the lovely Esprata, his first wife, whom he had married by Danish right, that is, without religious ties, for Liutgarda, daughter of Herbert of Vermandois, and his neglect of Richard, Esprata's son. His object, then, was to gain the favor of the Frankish nobles. To this we may perhaps also attribute his closer connection with the church, and contrary to his usual niggardly habits, his foundation of the abbey of Jumiege. His vain attempts to gain lasting alliance in that faithless age did not succeed. Nay, his own fickleness, his turncoat policy, utterly prevented success. Thus, while he alienated the Danish party, he had not succeeded in making friends amongst his allies and relations. They hated him as the captain of the pirates, and he knew it. Therefore, just at the end of his life, we notice a sudden change of policy. A fresh incursion of Danes took place, and he welcomed their arrival and allowed them to settle peaceably in the newly acquired district of the Cotentin. His son Richard, suddenly emerging from obscurity, became the darling of his father, was entrusted to William's old tutor Botho, the Danish-born and Bernard the Dane, and sent to Bayeux, 
to be instructed in the Danish tongue. This change, we may well believe, contributed to his ruin. There had long been a bitter enmity between William and his jealous and wicked neighbor Arnulf. The two rivals had married sisters, daughters of Herbert of Vermandois, but at that time such alliances served but to embitter the strife. The Count of Flanders was not likely to look upon the nest of pirates, as they called the Normans, with a favorable eye. Already causes of jealousy had occurred. Arnulf had offered a refuge to the defeated Breton rebels ten years before, and William in revenge had aided the Count of Ponthieu, whose dominions lay between Normandy and Flanders, and whose country Arnulf had coveted. Now William was allying himself with the Northmen, who were again stirring and troubling England and Gaul by their renewed incursions. They were evidently again becoming dangerous, and William, in league with Louis, might well be preparing fresh troubles for Gaul. A dangerous coalition was arising, so Arnulf argued, and so the other princes thought, to which Louis was perhaps lending himself, and of which William was the soul and center. One remedy remained, a rude and decisive one. William must be murdered. Such, probably, were the main causes which led to the mysterious assassination of William. In that deed, Arnulf, no doubt, was the prime mover. The actual assassin was probably one of the old Breton rebels who had the blood of relatives to avenge, but Hugh, at least, seems to have secretly favored it. The plot being laid, William was treacherously invited to a negotiation with Arnulf of the sum at Pekingi, separated from his adherents, and basely murdered on the Flemish side of the river in 942. William Longsword is one of those characters whom history has falsely honored, and he finds a place among the acknowledged heroes of France, almost among her martyrs. The fame of the Norman name, the partiality of the Norman historians who wrote for Richard his son, his tragic death, the romantic interest which surrounds the early life of his devoted son, his own attractive character, all have combined to throw an unreal glamour round his name. In him we find the weaknesses and the strength of his double nationality, his winning gracious manners, his ready wit and versatility he gained from his gentle mother Papa, his bright features, his bravery, his rough sense of justice, his personal vigour were the gifts of his father Rollo, and these earned him the love of his fellow men. But the fair traits were shaded by darker tints. Fickleness and faithlessness, these were the faults of his mother's race and of his age, and these he shared with the rest of his contemporaries. A creature of impulse, his justice seems to have had no firmer basis than that of natural inclination. Often seriously wishing to abandon his ducal throne for the seclusion of the cloister, he yet showed scanty regard for the things of Holy Church, and was niggardly in his endowments. The monasteries were the one redeeming element in those distracted times, and these, with one exception, he carelessly neglected. The paganism of his father seems in him hardly to have been eradicated, and following his impulse and not his conscience, he was led by circumstances from one shift to another to the fatal meeting on the banks of the Somme. Had he pursued one consistent policy and remained true to his word, 
he would have been at least respected, if not loved, and the wicked coalition against his life might never have been formed. As it was, he was snatched away in the midst of a changeable, aimless life, and the existence of his race and name in France was endangered by the long rule of a minor. End of section 5